0: Earlier this month, on June 9th, Tom Cruise starred in The Mummy, which, despite having the same name, isn't a straight makeup of the 1999 film with Brendan Fraser, but rather a reboot of the series. Although 1999's film was sort of a remake of the 1932 film, also called The Mummy, that's not to mention the 1952 film, also called The Mummy, sandwiched in between those decades. There's been a lot of movies called The Mummy coming out of Hollywood. Anyway, one of the screenwriters for Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz's film in 1999 was Kevin Jar. Sadly, Kevin passed away at only age 59 in 2011, so he won't be involved in the new film. Before he worked on 1999's The Mummy, though, Kevin wrote screenplays for a number of films you've probably seen. Rambo First Blood Part 2... The Devil's Own, Glory, and The Jackal, just to name a few. Unless you read the title for this episode, maybe you picked out the one of those movies that's based on a true story. Glory is a movie that's based on letters from Colonel Robert Shaw in the Union Army during the Civil War. But that's not what we're going to be learning about today. Maybe another day. Today, we're going to look at another film that Kevin Jarre helped write. Tombstone was actually a film Kevin almost wrote and directed before he was replaced by George Cosmatos at the helm. With a budget of $25 million, it wasn't a massively expensive film as far as Hollywood is concerned. And yet it raked in over twice that at the box office, making it an instant classic—a pseudo-title that I'd venture to say not many Westerns have achieved in the past few decades. So how true to history is Tombstone? Let's find out. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then at the end of the episode, we'll learn which one was a lie to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. Wyatt Earp died during the gunfight at OK Corral. Number two, Doc Holliday survived the gunfight at OK Corral. Number three, Virgil and Morgan Earp survived the gunfight at OK Corral only to be targeted in retaliation. Before we get back to the show, I want to do a little PSA. As is often the case, there's a lot of various stories surrounding the true events that we saw in Tombstone. Many of those stories directly contradict each other. For example, in 1976, an author named Glenn Boyer published a book called I Married Wyatt Earp, The Recollections of Josephine Sarah Marcus. Glenn himself said it was based on letters written by Josephine and for about 32 years everyone believed it was fact. It was taught in classrooms and used as sources for countless articles, books, and even movies, then, in 1998, it came to light that there was actually no documents backing up most of the facts that were claimed in the book. This ultimately led to the book's publisher, the University of Arizona, pulling it from their catalog. The reason I mention this up front is because it's not only an indication of how many quote-unquote facts themselves have been fictionalized over the years. But who knows how many other things have spun off from these supposed facts. So while I've done my best to weave my way through all of that to track down the true story, I think it's good from time to time to remember that this is still a weekly podcast. If you want a new episode each week, then I just simply can't spend months or years researching a single episode. Since this podcast is about comparing things, I've spent about 20 hours this week alone researching the true story for this episode. Sure, that might be a lot on top of a full time job and family stuff, but it's nothing like the months and years that a lot of great historians and authors spend researching single topics. And that's why I always like to point to the authors and books that the great authors who have dedicated months, years, or sometimes even more. Just to find the truth. Hopefully, you'll be inspired to pick up their books and keep digging to find out more behind the great stories. Or if you do know more about the true story, you can always hop over to the Base on a True Story Facebook group and share it with everyone there. You can find that at facebook.com groups slash Base on a True Story podcast. Once again, that's facebook.com groups Slash based on a true story podcast. I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. And with that little PSA out of the way, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Tombstone. It's 1879. The Civil War has ended, and there's an economic explosion causing a lot of people moving west to find riches. Included in those moving west are legendary lawman Wyatt Earp, who's retired now and wanting to settle down with his family, along with John Doc Holliday, who's hoping the dry weather will help his tuberculosis. Both Wyatt and Doc end up in Tombstone, a budding boom town in Arizona where silver was recently discovered. Meanwhile, over 100 outlaws which are exiled from Texas have banded together to form the earliest example of organized crime in America—a gang they've named themselves as the Cowboys. So that's the introduction to the movie. and How much of it was true? Well, we've got a lot to break down, so let's start with the year. It is true that the American Civil War was over in 1879. That lasted from April 12, 1861 through May 9, 1865. So what about the economic explosion after the war? Well, yeah, it's sort of true, but there's more to the story. During the Civil War, the government printed about $365 million worth of cash. This was cash that was not backed by gold or silver like most money was before the war, but rather promissory notes. Money backed by, well, pretty much just good intentions and promises by the government. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the economy in America was arguably better than it had ever been before in the history of the country. A huge part of that economic boom was because of the rise of a new invention. Railroads. They were being built around the country, making new jobs and at the same time connecting towns in ways that people had never seen before. But that was a benefit for the job seekers and consumers. On the back end, railroad companies had either been infused with cash from the war or were simply borrowing the money that they needed to finance it all. In 1879, though, when the movie starts, the United States was actually coming off of a depression. Not the Great Depression from the 1930s, but rather a period from 1873 to 1879 that's commonly referred to as the Long Depression. Although, at the time, it actually was referred to as the Great Depression up until the 1930s. That hadn't happened yet. Anyway, after the short period of prosperity, there was a series of events that started the Depression It started in 1871 when Germany ended using silver as money, instead backing the Deutschmark with gold alone. The effect of this was that Deutschmarks rose in value since it was only being backed by the more valuable gold. Another effect was that silver wasn't traded in Germany like it was before, so the supply of silver began to rise in other countries. That meant countries that still backed currency with silver started to see their currency drop in value, since they weren't trading it with Germany anymore. That, in turn, had economic impacts, which then pressured those countries to follow Germany's lead. The United States was one of those countries who used silver to back currency. So, in 1873, the U.S. Congress passed the 1873 Coinage Act, to end the use of silver to back currency. The hope was that the value of currency would rise, like it did in Germany once it was only backed by gold. Oh, and the US Treasury also released about $26 million in currency into the market at the same time. The additional cash, along with rising costs of currency, meant Interest rates bolted up, and all of a sudden, those railroad companies that had borrowed greenbacks to build their companies had to pay it back in gold. As you can probably guess, that didn't go over too well. The first of the banks to go bankrupt was Jay Cook & Company out of New York City. The owner, Jay Cook in particular, had invested a lot of money into those railroad companies. It was, after all, an emerging technology. But when everyone saw such a huge bank fail, panic set in. People rushed banks, demanding their money from the vaults. The panic that started in New York trickled to Washington, D.C. and Pennsylvania before spreading down the coast to Virginia, Georgia, and heading inland to Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio—all Midwestern states in the U.S. In all, about 100 banks went under. The economy in the United States went into a tailspin. In 1878, the Bland Allison Act was passed that essentially brought silver back into the picture. They weren't backing cash money with silver still, but rather the Bland Allison Act ordered the U.S. Treasury to buy silver from domestic sources and start minting silver coins. That helped, and in 1879 the contraction ended, making it, at least as of this recording, the longest-lasting contraction in American history. Now, when I say contraction, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, a contraction is identified as starting at the peak of a business cycle and ending at the trough, or the bottom. So, essentially, that means things started to get better in 1879. Yes, the five years and five months from October 1873 until March of 1879 was longer than the Great Depression, whose contraction lasted from August 29th until March of 1933 for a total of three years and seven months. That's why, once the Great Depression came about, the former depression was renamed by historians to the Long Depression to differentiate the two. Now, I'm not saying that the Great Depression ended in March of 1933, just the contraction. So things started to get better around then. That was the bottom. So all of that is the history of the first few sentences in the movie. But I really felt like it was important to dig deep into the background of what was happening leading up to the events in the movie because it really was much more than just the end of the Civil War. And it also helps give some insight into what it must have been like to discover silver in Arizona. That, like the movie says, did happen. In fact, many historians consider Tombstone one of the last big boom towns from the Old West when a prospector named Ed Scheifenlin found silver in 1877. Two years later, he established Tombstone. Oh, and by the way, a boomtown is a slang term for a town that was built really fast, usually after an onslaught of people moved nearby to mine some sort of a natural resource, silver, gold, oil, or something like that. One moment, there's an empty plot of land, and then someone finds something, and boom! There's a town. Hence, Boomtown. Finally, we've got the people mentioned in the movie's intro. Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, and of course the 100 Texan outlaws known as the Cowboys. All of those are real. The legendary lawman, as the movie calls Wyatt Earp, was a very real person. He became a lawman after his first wife died from typhus in 1870. Devastated with her passing, Wyatt left his hometown of Lamar, Missouri, spent years roaming the Midwest until finally moving to Wichita, Kansas. While in Wichita, he had two jobs. He worked as a police officer, and he also opened up a brothel with his brother, Virgil. Virgil, er, by the way, is played by Sam Elliott in the movie. Oh, and Wyatt is played by Kurt Russell in the movie. Wyatt earned himself a nickname in Kansas and eventually became the City Marshal of Dodge City, Kansas. It was here that Wyatt met up with John Holliday, played by Val Kilmer in the movie. John was more commonly called Doc thanks to his previous career as a dentist before being charged for murder after a shootout to settle a card game that went bad. He then spent several years moving around the country, making a living off of gambling—his preferred game was Pharaoh—and ultimately becoming the gambling gunfighter we know of through history. Now, There could be an entire episode just on Doc Holliday. In fact, each of the real people that the characters in the movie were based on could be an episode of their own. In fact, our friends over at the Drift and Ramble podcast have done some great episodes on Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. I'll put a link to their show in the show notes for this episode. Make sure to go check them out to learn more about these characters. While it doesn't look much like winter in the movie, it was in December of 1879 when Wyatt Earp moved to Tombstone, Arizona with his two brothers, Virgil and Morgan, who's portrayed by Bill Paxton. Of course, Tombstone is in Arizona, and for my friends outside the United States, that's in the southwestern region of the country where temperatures are typically between 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 80 degrees Fahrenheit in December, that's between 15.5 Celsius and about 26.6 Celsius. So it's really not that cold. Oh, and it was true that Doc Holliday had tuberculosis, a disease that was aggravated by the heavy drinking and late nights that accompanied his lifestyle. And Speaking of which, Doc wasn't really in Tombstone when the Earps arrived. In truth, Doc arrived in September of 1880, about nine months after the Earp brothers did. Back in the movie, there's another main character who comes to town. Accompanied by Billy Zane's fictional character, Mr. Fabian, enters an actress by the name of Josephine Marcus along with the rest of their theater troupe. Josephine is played by Dana Delaney in the movie. Unlike Mr. Fabian, Josephine Marcus was a real person. However, the events we see here aren't really true. We know that because the timeline doesn't really match up with what we see in the movie. Remember when we learned that the Earp brothers arrived in Tombstone in December of 1879? Well, we also know from history that after Josephine ran away from her parents' home in San Francisco at the age of 14 in 1874, she simply fell off the map for a while. The historical map, as it were. Some historians believe she went from San Francisco to Prescott, Arizona, using the fake name Sadie Mansfield, a name that also popped up in Tombstone but we don't really know for certain that that was her. The records of her resurfaced in Tombstone in October of 1880 when she went back to using her real name. The movie doesn't really mention dates, but it seems to imply that she arrived in town almost right after the Earps. But in truth, she arrived almost a full year after Wyatt Earp did. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park and it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks EarnIn. Another little fact the movie failed to mention is that Josephine didn't move to Tombstone in a theater troupe like we see in the film, but rather moved there at the request of Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Bahan. That character is played by John Tenney in the movie. We know this because of a letter Josephine sent to Johnny, the latter of which whom promised to marry Josephine if she moved to Tombstone. When she did... He decided not to marry her after all, but still managed to convince her to stay in town. Most historians refer to Josephine as having been the common-law wife of Johnny Behan. Being a common-law wife essentially means they lived together for an extended period of time. So basically, everyone considered them married, even though they never officially got married as far as the government is concerned. At this point, in 1880, Josephine would have been 17 years old and White Earp would have been about 32. Going back to the film's timeline, the Earp brothers are dragged into being the lawmen in town when a member of the Cowboys murders the current town marshal. Soon after, Sam Elliott's version of Virgil Earp decides to replace the marshal to help bring some law to the town. That's actually true. Well. The spirit of the story is true, at least. Maybe not the specific scenes. In the movie, we saw Tombstone's marshal, Fred White, get killed by Curly Bill Brocious. That happens well after Wyatt and Josephine are in town. This event did happen, but it happened on October 30th, 1880. So right around the same time Josephine arrived in town, and less than a year after Fred White was elected city marshal on January 6th. Oh, and in the movie, Fred White is played by Harry Carey Jr. while Curly Bill is played by Powers Booth. Of course, we don't really know if the exact specifics of what we saw in the film are true. What we do know is that Curly Bill's killing of the marshal seemed to have been an accident. An accidental murder. After Fred's death, the movie makes it seem like Virgil Earp just became the next marshal without any election. Now, In truth, the position was an elected position, but because of the sudden death of the previous marshal, instead, Virgil was appointed the position. So it would seem the movie is accurate here. The going salary at the time for city marshal in Tombstone was about $100 a month, which is about the same as $2,500 today. That's not including his cut of the city taxes that he was also in charge of collecting, Just like the movie shows, after becoming marshal, Virgil called on his brothers, Morgan and Wyatt, to be deputies. It was as acting marshal that Virgil and his brothers started trying to enforce the peace, thereby making some enemies out of the cowboys. Here's where the movie starts to derail from history just a little bit more. You see, in the movie, Virgil's first act as marshal is to enact a law that prohibits anyone from bringing a gun into town. He does this in hopes that it'll stop the murder in the streets like what happened to Fred White. While there was such a law passed, Virgil was not the one who passed it. Why? Because, unlike what we saw in the movie, Virgil actually wasn't the city marshal for very long. After being appointed the position in October of 1880, Virgil was only the interim marshal up until the city would hold a special election to determine the next marshal. That was held on November 13th, and Virgil Earp didn't even run for the position at first. Two of Tombstone's policemen, who didn't make it into the film, James Flynn and Ben Sippy, ran for the office. Then, for reasons we don't really know, James Flynn backed out, and Virgil took his place running against Ben Sippy. Despite this, Ben came back with 311 votes to Virgil Earp's 259 votes, So Ben Sippy became the Marshal of Tombstone. But that didn't deter Virgil because Ben's term was only until the next regular election and that was just a couple months down the road. On January 4th, 1881, the city held its first regular election since the emergency election after the death of Fred White. Virgil and Ben were the candidates and, again, Ben Sippy beat out Virgil Earp. So, when the movie shows Virgil as the city marshal enacting the law against carrying weapons in town, that's not really true. But Virgil did stay on as a policeman, and so he was involved with the law. And just because it wasn't Virgil enacting the law doesn't mean the law didn't exist or that he was not trying to enforce it. In fact, there were two city ordinances that went into effect that are relevant here. The first one, is City Ordinance No. 7, and it went into effect on April 12, 1881. Section 1. It shall be the duty of all policemen to arrest all parties found in the public streets within the city limits engaged in brawling, quarreling, etc., and all persons who shall be found in any disorderly act whereby a breach of the peace might be occasioned. That one isn't about carrying weapons, but it's something we saw enforced in the movie, even if the film didn't really call it out as such. Remember when Stephen Lang's version of Ike Clanton was arrested and put in jail for drunken threats he was making against the Earp brothers? Well, that really happened, and it was this ordinance that the real Virgil Earp used to arrest the real Ike Clanton. According to the movie, though, that little drunken charade by Ike is not the reason for the climactic gunfight. Instead, that's because of an outright disobedience for the city ordinance against carrying a gun in town. That, too, is true. Here's the Tombstone City Ordinance Number 9 that went into effect on April 19th, 1881. If you remember, the previous ordinance went into effect on April 12th, so this is just a few days later. Section 1. It is hereby declared unlawful to carry in the hand or upon the person or otherwise any deadly weapon within the limits of said city of tombstone without first obtaining a permit in writing. Section 2. This prohibition does not extend to persons immediately leaving or entering the city who, with good faith and within reasonable time, are proceeding to deposit or take from the place of deposit such deadly weapon. Section 3. All firearms of every description and bowie knives and dirks are included within the prohibition of this ordinance. In the movie, it's Sam Elliott's version of Virgil Earp trying to enforce this ordinance that led to the showdown. Despite all of this, the movie is correct here. I know that might sound confusing, but Virgil ended up being the city marshal even after losing the election. The election in January of 1881 saw Ben Sippy become the city marshal, but for reasons historians don't really know, Ben Sippy seemed to have had some financial troubles. On June 6, 1881, he requested a leave of absence from his job as city marshal so he could deal with those troubles. It was only supposed to be about two weeks, but no one saw him in Tombstone ever again. On June 28, 1881, Tombstone's mayor, John Clum, was done waiting for Ben Sipi to return and appointed Virgil Earp as the permanent city marshal. No more elections. Mayor John Clum, by the way, is played by Terry O'Quinn in the film. So that's why the movie is correct when it's showing Virgil Earp trying to enforce the ordinance leading to the showdown as city marshal. Of course, the specifics were creatively dramatized for the movie, but the basic gist is close enough that we can call it pretty accurate. By that, what I mean is that it was Virgil Earps trying to enforce the ordinance against carrying weapons in town that seemed to have been the final straw in the feud between the members of the Cowboys gang and the Earp brothers. On October twenty-sixth, 1881, at about 3 o'clock p.m., the infamous gunfight at O.K. Corral started, and on October 26th, 1881, at about 3 p.m., the infamous gunfight at O.K. Corral ended. The entire thing lasted about 30 seconds, arguably the most famous 30 seconds in the history of the American West. In the movie, we see the showdown take place right out front of the O.K. Corral. If you look closely in some of the shots, there's the letters OK above a rickety wooden gate leading into the horse corral. Surprisingly, even though the movie shows it happening here and everyone remembers the name OK Corral, it'd be natural to assume that it took place in the corral. But that's actually not quite true. It happened in a vacant lot behind the corral. According to some historians, that would be about six doors to the west of the back of OK Corral. The movie did a pretty good job of depicting the two sides of the gunfight, though. On one side, there was the three Earp brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan. Then there was Doc Holliday and Johnny Bahan. If you remember, he's the one who was sort of married to Josephine Marcus. And in the movie, he's the one who's walking with the other four and then ducks into a nearby building before the shootout. On the other side, in the real gunfight, there was Ike Clanton, Billy Clanton, Tom and Frank McLaurie, and Billy Claiborne. It happened so fast that we don't really know for sure who started the gunfight. In the movie, it started when Thomas Hayden Church's character, Billy Clanton, started pulling his gun in reaction to a silly grin from Val Kilma's version of Doc Holliday. Most historians believe it started with Billy Clanton, but not by him pulling his gun. Instead. The accepted belief now is that the gunfight started when Virgil Earp pulled his gun and shot Billy Clanton point-blank in the chest. Simultaneously, Doc Holliday hit Tom McLarry in the chest with a shotgun blast. And that's how it started. Thirty seconds later, about 30 shots had been fired. At least, that's what historians now believe. There's been some conflicting stories, and it's likely we'll never really know for sure Because of how famous those 30 seconds have become, I think now would be a great opportunity to travel back in time and hear what it was like then, because it tells a little different story than what we saw in the movie. This is an article from just four days after the gunfight at O.K. Corral. It was published by the Arizona Weekly Citizen newspaper on Sunday, October thirtieth, 1881, and it has a headline of, A Bloody Battle in the Streets of Tombstone. Tombstone, October 26. A fatal shooting affray occurred on Fremont Street near 3rd, about 3 o'clock this afternoon. It appeared that a number of cowboys have been in town for a few days past and have been drinking heavily and making themselves generally obnoxious. This morning, V.W. Earp, City Marshal, arrested one of them, Ike Clanton, and was fined $25 in the justices' court and disarmed. He left the court swearing vengeance. The Earp brothers shadowed them. Sheriff Bahan also met four of them coming out of the O.K. Corral and tried to pacify them. Just after he left them, the Earl brothers and Doc Holliday came along and hostilities at once commenced. It is not known who fired the first shot, but 25 shots were fired in quick succession. When the smoke of the battle cleared away, it was found that Jim and Frank McLowry were killed and Bill Clanton, mortally wounded, and is now dying. Ike Clanton was slightly wounded and is now in jail. All of these were cowboys. Morgan Earp is badly wounded in the back, and V.W. Earp has a flesh wound in the calf of the leg. Holliday has a slight scratch in the leg. The streets were immediately thronged with excited citizens, many of them armed with rifles and pistols. The sheriff summoned a posse who are now under arms. No further trouble is apprehended." I think it's interesting that the article mentions the citizens armed with rifles and pistols. Despite the ordinance to not be armed in town, it didn't really seem to take very long to be armed once the gunfight broke out. The movie doesn't really mention this, but three days after the gunfight, Ike Clanton pressed charges claiming his brother was murdered. As a result of this, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were arrested and there were hearings held by Judge Wells Spicer. Those trials lasted from November 2nd until November 29th. After all of the testimonies were done, Judge Spicer rendered his verdict on November 30th, 1881. His final verdict is over 3,000 words long, so way too much to share here, but I'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes if you actually want to read it. There is one paragraph that sums it up pretty well, though, and I quote, in view of all of the facts and circumstances of the case, considering the threats made, the character and positions of the parties, and the tragic results accomplished in manner and form as they were, with all surrounding influences bearing upon res of the affair, I cannot resist the conclusion that the defendants were fully justified in committing these homicides, that it is a necessary act done in the discharge of of an official duty." Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were set free. Even though the movie doesn't show these proceedings, I think they're important to mention because, despite the violent bloodshed of the gunfight, it would seem that Ike Clanton tried to resort to legal means instead of jumping to retaliation by way of murder. When legal means didn't work, though, he considered the event unresolved. In the movie, there's a moment where Wyatt and Morgan Earp are enjoying dinner when their brother Virgil leaves in perfectly good health, only to stumble back a few moments later covered in blood. Dramatized as it was for the movie, this retaliation happened. It was on December 28, 1881, around midnight, when Virgil Earp was walking between two buildings in Tombstone, one called the Crystal Palace and the other, Oriental Saloon. Remember, it's 1881, so names like this were common. Somewhere between the two, he was jumped by three men. We don't know for sure who the men were, but we know they were carrying shotguns and shot about five times. Two of those hit Virgil, one of them hitting his left side and back, while the other completely shattered his left arm. Again, the movie doesn't show this, but there were six men who were charged with the attack on Virgil. Ike Clanton... Johnny Ringo, Frank Stilwell, Hank Swelling, Pete Spencer, and Johnny Barnes. They were all cowboys, and they were charged with the crime. Other members of the cowboys gang came to back up their story in court, though, claiming that most of the men had been out of town at the time. So Judge Spicer released the charged men. Like the movie shows, as critical as they were, Virgil Earp didn't succumb to his wounds. His arm was crippled for the rest of his life, though. Back in the movie, the intensity of the feud continues as more blood is drawn. This time, it's Morgan Earp who's playing pool across town while Virgil is being tended to. Kurt Russell's version of Wyatt Earp leaves Virgil's room and runs into a few cowboys who decide to leave the gang, instead siding with Earps. Then a gunshot is heard over the thunder. Morgan crumples beneath the pool table. The movie is fairly accurate in carrying the spirit of the story here, even though we don't really know if those cowboys ended up leaving the gang and siding with the Earp brothers like that. The biggest inaccuracy here is the timeline. We know Virgil Earp was shot on close to or around midnight on December 28, 1881. Morgan Earp was ambushed around 10.50 p.m. on March 18th. 1882, a Saturday. Not even close to when Virgil was shot. So there's no way Wyatt could have gone from Virgil recovering from his wounds to hearing Morgan getting shot across town. Despite this change in the timeline to speed things up, the movie was correct with the method. Morgan was playing pool at the Campbell and Hatch Billiard Parlor in Tombstone against the establishment's owner, a man named Bob Hatch. While the movie shows Wyatt Earp on his way between Virgil and Morgan at the time, in truth, Wyatt was watching his brother play against Bob along with a couple of their friends. From outside the window, two shots rang out and instantly Morgan crumpled. He had been shot from the upper half of a windowed door that led to a dark alley between Fremont and Allen Streets in Tombstone. At the time, he was only about ten feet from the door. One of the shots missed, lodging itself in the wall just over Wyatt's head. The other one struck the right side of Morgan's body, shattering his spine as it exited the left side. We know this because it actually hit another bystander hitting a man named George Berry who was also watching the game. George's injuries were minor. Not so for Morgan. So the circumstances were quite different from what we saw in the movie. Sadly, the results were the same. Immediately after he was hit, Wyatt was at his brother's side, trying to help him get up to his feet. Morgan pleaded with his brother, Don't! I can't stand it! This is the last game of pool I'll ever play. Morgan Erp passed away on March eighteenth, 1882, at the age of 30. Going back to the movie, the Cowboy's leader throughout the film is Powers Booth's portrayal of Curly Bill Brotius. After the flurry of shots where we see Cowboys being shot by lawmen, there's a battle between Wyatt and Curly Bill at a river. After a few missed shots by Curly Bill, Wyatt raises his shotgun and kills Curly Bill. Now we don't really know enough specific details of what exactly happened to be able to say how accurate the movie is here, but let's find out what we do know so you can judge the film's accuracy for yourself. This article comes from the Tombstone Epitaph newspaper, published on March 27, 1882, under a headline, A Head-to-Head Encounter in Which Curly Bill is Killed. The town has been full of reports for the last two or three days as to the whereabouts of the Earp party and their probable movements. No sooner had one report got well under way before another was started that contradicted it. There has been marching and counter-marching by the sheriff and his posse until the community has become so used to the ring of spurs and clank of steel that comparatively little attention is paid to the appearance of large bodies of horsemen in the streets. Yesterday afternoon, the sheriff with a large force started down the road towards contention, possibly to follow up the report that the party had been seen in the Whetstone Mountains, west of the San Perido River, with their horses completely fagged out and the men badly demoralized. This, like many other reports, was as baseless as the fabric of a dream. Yesterday afternoon, as the sun was descending low in the western horizon, Had a person been traveling on the Crystal or Lewis Spring Road towards Burley Spring, as our informant was, he would have seen one of the most desperate fights between the six men of the Earp Party and nine fierce cowboys, led by the daring and notorious Curly Bill that ever took place between opposing forces on Arizona soil. Burley Spring is about eight miles south of Tombstone, and some four miles east of Charleston, near the mine of that name, and near the short road from Tombstone to Hereford. As our informant, who was traveling on horseback leisurely along toward the Burley, and he rose a slight elevation in the road about half a mile south thereof, he observed a party of six men ride down to the spring from the east, where they all dismounted. They had not much more than got well upon their feet when there rose up at a short distance away nine armed men who took deadly aim and fired simultaneously at the Earp party for such the six men proved to be. Horrified at the sight, that was like a lightning stroke flashed upon his vision. He instinctively stopped and watched for what was to follow. Not a man went down under this murderous fire, but like a thunderbolt shot from the hand of Jove, the six desperate men charged upon their assailants, like the light brigade at Balaklava, and when within easy reach, returned fire under which one man went down, never more to rise again. The remaining eight fled to the brush and regained their horses when they rode away toward Charleston, as if the King of Terrors was at their heels in hot pursuit." The six men fired but one volley, and from the close range it is supposed that several of the ambushed cowboys were seriously, if not fatally, wounded. The six men returned to their horses, where one was found to be in the agony of death, he having received one of the leaden messengers intended for his riders. The party remained at the spring for a time, refreshing themselves and their animals when they leisurely departed going southerly as if they were making for the Sonora. After the road was clear, our informant rode on and came upon the dead man, who, from the description given, was none other than Curly Bill, the man who killed Marshal White in the streets of Tombstone one year ago last September. Since the above information was obtained, it has been learned that during the night, the friends of Curly Bill went out with the wagon and took the body back to Charleston, where the whole affair has been kept a profound secret so far as the general public is concerned. In the movie, there's another showdown when Michael Bynes' character, the gunslinger Johnny Ringo, challenges Wyatt Earp to a duel in a rather nondescript wooded area. Except instead of fighting Wyatt, Val Kilmer's version of Doc Holliday shows up and manages to outgun Johnny. That might be true. The true story is something that, well, we honestly just don't know. What we do know is that on July Fourteenth, 1882, an unnamed person walking the property neighboring their own happened upon Johnny Ringo's body near Turkey Creek Canyon, just outside Tombstone. He was already dead, lying against the trunk of a tree, like we saw in the movie, and there was a bullet wound in his right temple and an exit wound in the back of his head. Interestingly, we see Valcomer's Doc Holliday hit Johnny Ringo in the left temple in the movie. It's on the right side, according to the way the camera's angled from behind Doc's back, but it's actually Johnny's left temple. Anyway, that same neighbor claimed to have heard a single gunshot around 2 p.m. the day before, but he didn't really think anything about it. After all, this was the American Old West. To add to the mystery, someone had wrapped Johnny's feet in strips of cloth that had been torn from his own shirt. Johnny was found with a gun hanging by one finger from his hand, and it was fully loaded with the exception of one round that had been fired. Officially, Johnny Ringo was determined to be a suicide. The judge determined the one bullet expended to have been the one that entered his own head. But was it? About two miles away, they found his horse with his boots tied to the saddle. This was actually a common thing to do, to take off your boots and tie them to the horse to avoid getting scorpions inside make sure they don't climb in. But why would that matter if he planned on committing suicide? It's a mystery that we just don't know. Today, Johnny Ringo is still lying beneath the tree. He was buried just a few feet from where his body was found. As is the case with any mystery, there's a lot of theories. According to historian Glenn Boyer, who we learned about earlier, there was a manuscript from Josephine Earp who said Wyatt and Doc Holliday stumbled upon Johnny Ringo at Turkey Creek Canyon and Wyatt shot him with a rifle as Johnny tried to run from the two. Another theory is one that we saw in the movie, where Doc Holliday took Wyatt's place for a challenge between Johnny and Wyatt. With that theory, things went down pretty much like what we saw in the movie, Doc being a much faster shot than Wyatt, took Wyatt's place, and Doc shot Johnny in a duel. There's plenty of other theories, including other characters that just don't show up in the movie. The point here is that we just don't know the truth. With the two main leaders of the Cowboys gang dead, the movie comes to a close as we see the fate of the main characters. It starts with the camera pan up from a sign that says Glenwood Sanatorium, Colorado, to where we see Val Kilmer's version of Doc Holliday, bedridden from his tuberculosis. Although we don't see him die, there's an emotional moment when it's obvious death is near and he asks his good friend Wyatt to leave his bedside so he doesn't see the moment of passing. While dramatized, the spirit of the story is accurate here. Probably the biggest surprise would be with the timeline. Since there's not much, by the way, of time in the movie that passes from the duel between Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday to the scene in Glenwood, it's hard to know how much time is actually passing. So for a bit of context, we know Johnny Ringo's body was found on July fourteenth, 1882. It was at about 10 o'clock a.m. on November eighth, 1887, when John, Doc Holliday, passed away due to his tuberculosis in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He was 36 years old. Two months later, word of Doc's death made it to Wyatt Earp. At the end of the movie, despite the death we've seen so far, it's a somewhat happy ending as we see Kurt Russell's version of Wyatt Earp proposed to Dana Delaney's version of Josephine Marcus, and the two of them run away together. Then with the two of them kissing as snowflakes fall, the movie's narrator mentions a few facts. Ike Clanton died of a gunshot two years later. Maddie overdosed and died after she left Tombstone. Finally, White Earp died in Los Angeles in 1929. Let's start with Ike Clanton. The movie is half true. He did die from a gunshot on June 1st, 1887. Ike and his brother Phil Clanton were charged with the crime of cattle rustling, while Phil—his full name was Phineas— Surrender to the authorities, Ike resisted. He was shot and killed." So the other half there is that while he did die from a gunshot, Ike Clanton did not die two years later. He actually died on June 1, 1887, 160 days before Doc Holliday died. As for Matty Earp, who is played by Dana Wheeler Nicholson in the movie, that's another mystery where we'll never fully know the truth. Her real name was Celia Ann Blaylock, but most people called her Maddie. The movie doesn't really mention this, but prior to becoming Wyatt Earp's common-law wife, Maddie was a prostitute. The last name of Earp was something she earned after she was considered the common-law wife of Wyatt Earp, although the two were never officially married. Maddie died on July 3, 1888, in the town of Penal, Arizona. That's a town... That doesn't exist anymore. The official cause of death was suicide by way of opium poisoning. She was 40 years old. As for Wyatt Earp, the movie is correct in stating he died in 1929 in Los Angeles, California. To be more specific, it was January 13th, 1929. After the events we saw in the movie Tombstone, Josephine Marcus left the city of Tombstone on March twenty-fifth, 1882. She was bound for San Francisco, the city she'd left years before as a teenage runaway. In July of 1882, Wyatt Earp joined Josephine in San Francisco. The two stayed there for about nine months until leaving together for Colorado, where there were budding gold and silver mines. That was the first boomtown the two lived in, but it wasn't the last. For the next four decades, Wyatt and Josephine moved around the country together as husband and wife, even though the two had never officially been married. On January thirteenth, 1929, Wyatt Earp passed away from a urinary tract infection known as cystitis. He was 80 years old and, at the time of his death, the last surviving participant of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. According to the movie, the Hollywood actor William S. Hart attended Wyatt Earp's funeral. Himself an acting legend who starred in 74 movies, William Hart befriended Wyatt Earp in Wyatt's later years. But that's not all he did. Josephine Earp, who had taken her common-law husband's name after living together for 46 years until his death, finally died at the age of 83 on December twentieth, 1944. When she died, she had nothing. Her family had all passed and she was completely broke. It was William Hart who paid for her funeral. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. To learn more about the true story behind a tombstone, I'd recommend checking out a book called Wyatt Earp, The Life Behind the Legend by Casey Turfer-Tiller. There's a ton of other resources you can use to learn what actually happened, or at least as much as we know of what actually happened. I'll make sure to add links to the book and plenty more resources for you to start digging into over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Now, before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here is a very succinct five-star review from Daniel Aaron Austin. Quote, Dan's voice and the wealth of information in this podcast are so gratifying to listen to. I cannot suggest this podcast more highly. My favorite so far is the Life Before Mickey episode. It is choice. Shout out to the OKC podcast community for showing me this podcast. And that there are great podcasts within my own state. End quote. First, I've gotta say, awesome name, Daniel. <laughs> you know, to be completely honest, I didn't really know how well the Life Before Mickey episode would turn out. I mean, I love the content and everyone knows about Walt Disney. And it's exactly for that reason that it's tough to know how well an episode like that will turn out. I mean, everyone knows about Walt Disney. So I wasn't even sure if it'd be worth covering that on the podcast. But I'm really happy you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for your kind words, Daniel. And yes, shout out to the OKC podcast community. And thank you, dear listener, for taking the time to find and listen to the base on a True Story podcast. If you want to leave a review for me to read in a future episode, hop over to Apple Podcasts or if you're not an Apple person, you don't have to use Apple Podcasts or iTunes to leave a review. Now you can leave a review for the show on the Based on a True Story Facebook page, over at Facebook.com/slash Based on a True Story Podcast. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one: Wyatt Earp died during the gunfight at OK Corral. Number two, Doc Holliday survived the gunfight at O.K. Corral. Number three, Virgil and Morgan Earp survived the gunfight at O.K. Corral only to be targeted in retaliation. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is… Number one, despite all of the gunfights that he was involved in, Wyatt Earp emerged unscathed. In fact, it was because of this aversion to being wounded it really helped fuel the legend of Wyatt Earp. Thanks again for listening. And I want to say a special thank you to Rob Hilliard and Shauna Parker for taking the time to recommend Tombstone Get Covered on the podcast. Do you have a movie you'd like to hear covered? You can send in a recommendation at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash recommend. Or you can join the Base on a True Story Facebook group to talk about the movie or any of the movies that we've covered, or really just interact with the rest of the community, that's at facebook.com/slash groups slash base on a true story podcast. Or you can just do a search on Facebook for Base on a True Story Podcast. And if you want to see some of the photos of faces and places behind each episode, follow the show on Instagram. It's at base on a true story podcast. Finally, you can find me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan LeFebvre, or if you're not a fan of social media, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email to interact with me directly at dan at com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.